you know, I don't want to overstate this point, but I happen to be listening to NPR. It's, just, I think it's American Experience, American something about a, you know, a week or two ago. I'm trying to explain all this in simple terms. Started a little balance sheet. This guy has ten dollars, and you know, loan to someone who had a piggy, might be a dollhouse, and so on. They just got it more and more and more. And I thought it was very well done. Yeah, they did. I thought they did a very nice job. I agree with you. Yeah. Hi, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum in Washington, D.C. And in New York, I'm Laura Conway. This is Wednesday, March 4th. That was Senator Max Baucus of Montana talking with Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner on Capitol Hill today. They're talking about some, I don't know, some radio show. Ours, I think. Yeah. On today's show, we're going to talk about the velocity of money. The Obama administration saying no to nationalizing banks, but maybe kind of sort of tiptoeing that way anyhow. And we're going to hear from one really lucky guy, believe it or not, in Detroit. Okay, David, let's do the Planet Money Indicator. It is 729750 Those would be dollars. Those are actually borrowed dollars. President Barack Obama released the details on that plan to help homeowners stay out of foreclosure and... One of, this is one of the detail, details. It says, if you've got anywhere less than $729,750 in unpaid principal on your mortgage, you could be eligible. Do you think they calculated that number? I mean, why not six cents or... Like, you know, it has to do with something called a conforming limit. I've just been reading about this. Okay, <laughs> I'll we'll put it on that the for, blog. We'll save it for the blog. <laughs> um, but anyway, the, the other details that you have to borrow the money before January 1st, 2009. That's right. No, nobody who ran out in the first couple of weeks of January and February is going to get in. Now we're going to talk about a different idea. It's this really interesting concept in economics called the velocity of money. You know, I, fi- I find that coins move faster than bills, personally. If you throw them. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, it has to do with how fast money is zooming around from person to person, changing hands. And this question of velocity is at the center of a really crucial debate right now, which is how well will the stimulus plan work? Uh, Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner got an earful about this on Capitol Hill yesterday. The earful came from Republican Representative Kevin Brady from Texas, who said the Obama administration's predictions for how well the stimulus plan was going to work were way too rosy. Do you know of a single economist who believes that we will contract only 1% this year? Uh, Congressman, thank you so much for raising this point. It's very important. Uh, The administration's forecast is within the range of CBO's post-stimulus forecast. It's within the range of the full range of private forecasters out there. I'm sorry, David. (laughs) It's within the range of the full range of the private forecast that's out there. Yeah, and CBO is the Congressional Budget Office, by the way, right? So Congressman Brady was not buying that explanation. Mr. Secretary, Secretary, if you look at what Chairman Bernanke said just last week, 2% contraction this year, 2% growth next year, you're nowhere near those numbers. They went around and around on this. Brady saying, no, your predictions are unreasonable. Geithner saying, no, 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 they're fine. They're fine. So we're not going to get into who's right here, but we wanted to try to address why there is such a huge range 
in the predictions for how well the stimulus plan is going to work. So we called Ian Shepardson at High Frequency Economics, who's been writing about this. We started by talking about the Congressional Budget Office uh, predictions. They said this week that the stimulus plan could boost GDP by anywhere from 1.4% all the way up to 3.8%, which is a huge range. It's a range between not very effective and quite effective. So... um... Uh, one would hope that they'll be towards the upper end of the range. So I've got to say I'm not particularly confident. Okay, so let's talk about one reason why there is such a range, which you highlight yeah. here, which is this idea of the velocity of money. And this is something I think sometimes that I understand, and then I think about it more and I realize maybe I don't understand it. Could you right. give us a really simple explanation? Uh, well, the velocity of money is uh, a measure of the, the speed with which the money in this economic system goes round and round, it goes from your hands into the hands of a retailer, say, when you buy something. But if you decide not to buy something, then the money stays in your hands, and so the speed of circulation drops. And when the speed of circulation drops, other things equal, then the economy deteriorates. And what's happening right now is that the speed of money circulation has dropped very sharply because people want to hang on to it. Uh, unfortunately, they want to hang on to it in really quite a big way, given how over-indebted uh, the average uh, household is. And as a result, we're seeing this catastrophic weakness uh, in the whole economy. So the way this, the way this feeds into the question of uh, how well will the stimulus money work is that the government uses the money to buy stuff, for instance, in the simplest example, right? And then, um, so I don't know, the government buys materials for roads or something simple like that, right? Um, and then the people who build the roads have money. But the question is, what do they do with it? Do they go out and spend it or do they save it? Absolutely. That's, that, that is the key issue. What we want, what we hope for, is that the stimulus will fall into the hands of people or companies who are inclined to go and spend it. What we really don't want is for the money to fall into the hands of people who are determined just to save it. But unfortunately, when you're looking at tax cuts, which are going to households that are under financial pressure, I think you have to assume that a fair bit of the money will be used to pay down credit card debt or or some other form of uh, consumer credit in order to uh, keep the wolf from the door rather than people getting the money and say, hey, let's go and buy a new plasma TV this week. Now, that's the sort of thing that happens if you give a tax cut in a boom. But when you cut taxes or, or give direct stimulus payments to people or to businesses, when times are tough, they're much more likely to think long and hard about spending it. And the extent to which they're going to think about spending it is the great unknown. We just don't know. Is what you're telling me uh, coming from one particular you know, economic school of thought because – you know, the Keynesians have very different ideas from other schools, for instance, about, you know, what affects the savings rate and what's appropriate or, you know, I mean, it gets very complicated. Oh, sure. You can, you can, you can model the saving rate and, and try and uh, work out its behavior in a million different ways. And, and the way that you look at the economy is certainly going to have some impact on that. But in, in terms of the, the basic mathematics, it's the same, whichever school of thought you apply that you, uh, you know, you come from. So the, the, the simple fact is that, that for anybody, whether you're looking at corporations or individuals, the amount of money that people spend is equal to their income, um, less the change in the saving rate. So the more the saving rate goes up, then for a given stream of income, people will spend less. And that's just a straightforward accounting uh, identity. You know, that doesn't change whether you're a Keynesian or a monetarist or somewhere in between. Anarchist, Marxist, I'm afraid the mathematics is just inevitable and unavoidable. And what we're seeing right now is a big quick rise in the saving rate. 
Of course, you know, once you've got a high saving rate, it isn't necessarily a problem. There's lots of economies, particularly economies in Asia, that for many, many years have had very high saving rates and have got on just fine. So it's not the level of the saving rate that's the problem. It's the change, the size of the change and the speed of the change. And what's happening now is that we're getting a big change very quickly. Uh, but you're saying once you, once you settle into a higher savings rate, maybe then people go back to normal, um, you know, normal spending. Sure. Once the saving rate reaches a sustainable level, then you know, by definition, the rate of change drops to zero. So at that point, you start to spend in line with your income. And so if your income is, again, in a normal economy, not now, but in a normal economy, you'd be looking for real incomes after tax, hopefully to be rising in the 2 to 2.5% range, uh, which is um, not a million miles away from where the Fed thinks the long-term sustainable growth rate for the economy is. But, of course, right now, incomes are falling because we've got payrolls dropping by more than half a million every month, uh, and we've got, uh, or we're starting to see anyway, some pressure on wages as well. So right now we don't even have the income, and we have this very rapid rise in the saving rate. So both sides of that equation that generates the spending number are pointing horribly in the wrong direction. Right. You say horribly, but um, you know, is is saving so is saving so bad? Right, as you point out, people are reacting to spending probably more than they should have at some point in the past. Yeah, absolutely. The U.S. needs to save more. There's no doubt about that. Uh, the, the, the problem is simply the speed that we're making the adjustment. Uh, had this adjustment taken place over ten years, uh, no one would have felt very much pain. But unfortunately, the adjustment is being squashed into what seems to be a very short period. And so it's um, a much more aggressive downshift that we're seeing. Uh, that's why we have such a, a problem now. That's why we're losing jobs so rapidly. But uh, once we get to this stable savings position, then yeah, the, the, the boom conditions will have been fully reversed and worked off. Uh, the current account deficit will have come down substantially. And uh, the economy ought to be in, in much better shape. But it's just getting to that point that is so horrendously painful when you do it in a very rapid and uncontrolled fashion. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, I think it still has some way to go. My, my guess, for what it's worth, is that we're maybe almost halfway through this process of getting the saving rate up to a, a sustainable long-term level. So we've been in recession now for, this is the 15th month. So I think, unfortunately, we've got some way to go. The stimulus will speed the process along a bit, but it certainly won't prevent it from happening. It won't ameliorate all of its consequences and all of the pain that it's going to cause. But it will, uh, at least if the CBO is right, towards the upper end of its range, it will, it will make things rather less bad in the second half of the year. Laura, the other question I asked Ian Shepardson that I never understood about the velocity of money is like, what if I just say, Ian, those are great. I love the socks you're wearing. I'll give you 10 bucks for them. And then we do that. And then he looks at my socks and says, I'd like those. And we just keep passing our old socks back and forth for 10 bucks. Does that contribute to the velocity of money? And he said, yeah, but it's not going to make anyone richer because... You know, if you build a road, then everyone gets maybe a little gas, better gas mileage. There's more, you know, uh, commerce and stuff like that. But just selling socks back and forth doesn't help. Money is so strange sometimes, David. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you for that interview. In the past few weeks here on Planet Money, we have been setting out two very different options the administration can use to deal with this banking crisis. The first is that they can bail out the banks. They can keep them alive without making them suffer the full consequences of this bad market. Or they can take over the banks through nationalization or receivership. Basically, they can kick out the management and run the banks themselves. What the Obama administration is doing right now, it's sort of a hybrid public-private thing. They're propping up the banks 
in fact, with so much money, they could actually buy the banks. But and they're, they're trying very hard not to own them. They're doing everything in their power to prop them up without owning them, which is, is getting difficult now because the stock prices are, are so low. The government's view here is they're saying, look, we're, we're just we're not we're not taking them over. We're just supporting them until they can survive on their own. But there are some people who think this is it's really we're creeping toward nationalization. Yeah. And to get a sense of where politics would play into all this, Adam Davidson and I talked to Sean West. He analyzes what he calls political risk, which I found kind of interesting as a category. He looks at the U.S. political scene for a company called the Eurasia Group. And Sean West believes that the Obama administration may not be using the word nationalization. Okay. But he says they are leaving the door open or maybe even actually opening the door to it. So they've constructed this stress test, which will tell them um, what banks have adequate capital and what banks don't. And then they're going to provide that capital to the banks that need it, but they're going to do it in exchange for shares that convert into ownership of the bank. Now, that was a choice that they decided to make. They could, could loan money to banks to put temporarily on their books. They could buy preferred shares, as they had done um, previously. The decision that these, these stakes convert into ownership is, a, is an actual choice, but it's one that's sort of two or three degrees removed from overt nationalization. It, it allows them to take ownership of, of banks as necessary, to do it incrementally, to, to say not have to do it if the banks are able to pay back their loans. So it's not, it's not overt, um, it's not requiring nationalization. But the, the net effect, rather than actually, you know, talking in language of nationalization, it's really we're, we're looking at the government has opened the door to increasing ownership of these banks. What would happen? Why, why, can't, you know, why can't President Obama make a speech to the nation tonight and say, well, the last thing I want to do is nationalize the banks, but here we are. We have no choice. This is what we have to do. We're doing it tomorrow. Why can't they just do that? Well, I, I think because full nationalization invokes a ton of questions about, okay, so if, you're, if we're going to, say, nationalize one bank, is there going to be a run on all these other banks? Then they get, then they get um, political flack for having not thought out the entire situation. Republicans can say that they're doing it because of some, some socialist agenda to, to you know, grow government or take over the banking system. And also, another point that I think we don't, we don't think about a lot in terms of political backlash is some of these institutions, like Citigroup, own... Um, own banking organizations in foreign countries. So you wind up in a situation where, say, for instance, with um, Bonamex, a Mexican, uh, Mexican bank that Citigroup owns, if the U.S. government comes in ownership of it, the Mexican government is, is a, has to take a position on whether to tolerate Citigroup's continued ownership of Bonamex because of its own laws forbidding a foreign government from owning banks in its own country. So you wind up in an international polit- political dispute as well. And then you, you said Republicans and international leaders, but you also have Democrats who have gotten, you know, have long and deep ties to the financial industry, and the financial industry doesn't want nationalization, right? I mean, even his own party would, would attack him. No, that's definitely true. I mean, I think they, they would have to be somewhat tempered because he's, a, he's the president from their own party. But yeah, he would be attacked from all angles. And that's, you know, it's just, it's sort of a non-starter to overtly do it until you've exhausted all other options. So I think that's, that's what they're doing at this point. And in fact, you know, taking a 36% stake in Citigroup, that, that's huge, right? That, that's, a, that's a huge move to own part of that bank. And by doing it incrementally instead of, say, taking it over, they're, they're able to kind of deflect, deflect scrutiny of it, right? So they do it on the same day that they, that they uh, announce plans to withdraw from Iraq. They do it a day after they announce a budget that fundamentally rethinks um, how, how 
the U.S. government taxes and spends. And so those, those issues are, you know, those are the issues where the administration is ideological. I mean, this seems like this is politics 101, right? I mean, you so you, you scream what you're I mean, th- this goes back to, you know, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Uh, you know, I, I come to bury Caesar not to praise him. I mean, it's just a standard political trick that if you want to accomplish something that everyone is that many, many people will be against. You publicly claim how you're going to do the opposite, and then you slowly, deliberately do what you wanted to do anyway, but you do it gradually and, and, and over a long period of time. So there's not any one moment where all of your opposition can get together and try and stop you. Well, it's, it's certainly having that effect. You know, it's hard, it's hard to know if, you know, deep in, deep in the White House, there's this plan to eventually own all these banks. I don't actually think that that's the case. I'm sure they'd love to love to not do that. But if there, if there was consensus within the White House to that, that it's going to be necessary to nationalize at least one institution, I think the way they're, they're going to go about it is with the cover that this is sort of done as necessary. And if the end result is they end up owning these banks, then that's what happened because it was necessary, not because they wanted to own it. So I actually think it's, it's really clever politics. The other thing about any nationalization plan is if it's anything like the other plans that have been released over the last few weeks, it will not be understandable to ordinary people. Yeah, I mean the, the And that's an advantage politically, right? Well, the, yeah, the stra- the stress tests and the capital injection plan, you know, they 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 released they released it in multiple forms. There's a sort of very arcane term sheet. There's also a somewhat readable white paper that explains it, but at the, end, at the end of the day, I mean, the intended audience is the entities that are going to be participating in it, and they're much more concerned with the specifics of the terms rather than sort of the general thrust of where this lands the government, although arguably both of those are just as important. All right. I, I want to wrap up, but I just want to kind of make clear exactly what we're saying the administration – how this plan serves this gradualist approach, and I believe someone – who worked with Geithner told me his favorite phrase is preserving optionality, um, which Ooh. is a fancy way of saying, you know, I get to do what I want, I guess. Is that the title of your memoir? Yeah. <laughs> um, but so 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 basically with the new plan for the next two months, the government's going to conduct these stress tests. Um, there's a lot of wiggle room, it seems, in these stress tests. I mean, if, if the government has an interest in finding a bank insolvent, they can. If the government has an interest in finding that banks are pretty robust, they can, as far as we can tell. Um, and then it sets in place a bunch of, quote unquote, voluntary options for the banks. The banks can freely request that the government give them capital. Um, and the banks can decide, do we want that capital to remain preferred shares, which basically means even though preferred sounds like you have more power, you actually have less power, um, or do we want to convert those preferred shares into common shares, which basically means the government gets to boss us around a lot more. And, and as a result, the, the decision-making is happening at the banks, at least it seems. I mean, obviously, the government will have an influence over how the banks make their decision. But, but basically, I don't know, it's like a good parent, like, Mommy, mommy, I want more ice cream. Really? Do you really want more ice cream? Let's think about this. Um, like, like the government saying to the banks, well, we don't want to nationalize you banks, but here's some options that you can think of that you can choose. 
but but the choices are a bit constrained. I'm not. I don't. I don't want to make it sound like it's it's totally controlled. Anyway, am I? Is that sort of the picture that we have of what's going to happen over the next few weeks and months? Not going to catch a decision maker in the administration or say Ben Bernanke. You know, advocate that nationalization is the route that they want to take, unless unless it becomes critically necessary to do it immediately, which you know we don't we don't see. It doesn't look like that's where it's headed right now. But for the time being, they're going to continue to say we believe in private solutions, but at the same time have opened the door to sort of public ownership of these institutions. And you know, as you guys have put forward the the, the multiple lines of argument for why nationalization may be necessary, it really depends on you know, one's own personal thinking of whether that's such a bad thing or not. It's just, the, for, for us, the, the interesting angle is sort of the political shrewdness of the, the approach. Sean West analyzes U.S. political risk for the Eurasia Group. We recently started a new section on the Planet Money blog. It's called Green Shoots. And it's for good news stories about economic recovery. Any hint, anything you see where you are, any sign that things might be getting better. And for some people, things have sort of stayed okay all along. We already blogged this one person's story. His name is Jason Bailey. And you know how President Obama has those three main sectors he's focusing on? Uh, no. You mean the economy, the economy, and the economy? <laughs> no, I mean healthcare, education, and energy, especially renewable energy. Oh, those things. Okay. Right. So get this. Jason Bailey is married. He's got young kids. And good thing for him, number one, his wife works as a teacher. That's uh, education. That's number two in the Obama list. Exactly. And it comes with a good bit of job security. Not perfect, but pretty good. Uh, good thing number two for him is that he was in the auto industry in July, but he got out of that and he's now making solar panels, which is another Obama focus. And finally, Jason and his family live in greater Detroit. Last year, the foreclosure rate there was something like 5%. And in the middle of the summer, they were thinking they might have to move. So they put their house on the market and they sold it for a loss. But then... We found a house that was a bank... Uh, bank-owned foreclosure. Uh, it was built back in like 2004 and had never been lived in. So the, basically the builder built it and somewhere along the line either the builder went defunct or I'm not sure what happened, but um, that house became bank-owned and uh, we, we went after it and got a uh, ridiculous deal on it. How much do you think that you saved off its original cost? Well, we... We found it's funny when we moved in. Um, we were going through the cabinets and stuff, and we found some old uh, some old flyers um, that the real estate agent had left when they originally had put it on the market. It was those flyers had it listed at four hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars. We bought the house for two hundred ninety. So, did you make up the amount you lost by selling at the wrong time? Well, uh, pretty close. Like we we had the house pray when we moved in. We had like I said, we bought it for two ninety, and then when we had it appraised right after, like right after we moved in, um, they appraised it at three ten, uh, which that alone made up half of what we lost on our old house. And it's bigger, I take it. Oh yeah, it's uh, we we went from a, a fourteen hundred square foot uh, two bedroom house to uh, this new one is um, just it's like thirty two hundred square feet four bedrooms. Wow, and you got out of your old job at a good time. Yes. Into a new company. Yes. The solar thing. You lucky dog. It's <laughs> I know that's what everybody tells me. They're like, "How did you? Uh, how did you manage that?" You know. 
And you know what else, David? Jason Bailey is busy buying stocks. Wow, he really is listening to President Obama. <laughs> yes. He just urged everyone to go out. He said, now might be the time to yeah. buy stocks. Jason Bailey says, send me the bargains. Planet Money listeners, send us your green shoot stories. Our, your scorched earth ones, we are open for business. Send them to us. Pictures, letters, indicators. You can write to us at planetmoney at npr.org. And you can also find us on the blog. We're at npr.org slash money. Folks, without you guys, it's not the same. On our next podcast, we're going to be talking about the February unemployment numbers. But that doesn't really make you want to tune in and listen, does it? Why do they call it unemployment numbers? We should call them employment numbers. You know, it used to be the Department of War. Now it's the Department of Defense. So we're going to have the February employment numbers for you. They're coming out on Friday. All right. Until that happy time, I'm Laura Conaway. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thanks for listening. When you try to explain it, when Chairman Bernanke tries to explain it, members of Congress try to explain it, just it's 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 Greek. It's in a language. It doesn't doesn't underst- it's not understandable. And um, I wonder if you could is there some way you can kind of just in English to the average American understand? I think most members of Congress don't understand it. I think you're um, you know I, I completely agree that I think the instruments are complicated, but the objective is relatively simple. And the objective is to try to make sure that banks are strong enough that they can lend and provide credit. And we get these, the pipes that are critical to the credit markets unfrozen and unclogged. Well, I just urge you to th- try to think this through and, and more in words and terms and the average American starts to understand. You know, I don't want to state this point, but I have to be listening to NPR. It's, just, like it's American experience, American something about a, you know, a week or two ago. I'm trying to explain all this in simple terms. Start a little balance sheet. This guy has ten dollars, and you know, loan to someone who had a piggy, might buy a dollhouse, and so on. They just got it more and more and more. And I thought it was very well done. Yeah, they did. I thought they did a very nice job. I agree with you. Yeah.